0: In this commentary, I'm going to share my thoughts about cantos 8 through 14 of Tennyson's In Memoriam A.H.H. In Canto 8, Tennyson echoes the sentiments of Canto 7, the feeling that darkness has descended over all the once bright places associated with the memory of his friend. He compares himself to the happy lover, who eagerly rings the bell of his love's home, feeling as if it is bathed in a magic light, then learns she is not there and sees all the light and joy abruptly extinguished. The sentiment is punctuated by the phrase, all is dark where thou art not. Something about the cadence of that phrase makes it memorable to me and emphatic. There are some phrases that I know immediately will linger in my subconscious. That is one of them. He then imagines the desolate lover wandering in his love's garden and finding there a neglected and weather-beaten flower. That poor flower, thinks Tennyson, is like my poetry. I'm not exactly sure of the comparison he's making. Perhaps he's saying that he regards his poetry as untended because he has been too mired in his grief to devote himself to his art. Or perhaps he is saying it has been unattended to, because it has lost its most sympathetic audience in Hallam. But in either case, he won't let it die. He will memorialize his friend with poetry, and whatever the failings of his words, they will have been wrought in tribute to his friend, a friend who would have understood and been grateful. Here's Canto eight. A happy lover who has come to look on her that loves him well, Who lights and rings the gateway bell And learns her gone, and far from home. He saddens, all the magic light Dies off at once from Bower and Hall, And all the place is dark, And all the chambers emptied of delight. So find I every pleasant spot In which we two were wont to meet, The field, the chamber, and the street, For all is dark where thou art not. Yet as that other, wandering there in those deserted walks, May find a flower beat with rain and wind, Which once she fostered up with care, So seems it in my deep regret, O my forsaken heart, With thee and this poor flower of poesy, Which little cared for fades not yet. But since it pleased a vanished eye, I go to plant it on his tomb, That if it can, it there may bloom, Or dying, there at least, may die. In Canto 9, Tennyson addresses the ship that bears his friend's remains home to England. I find this canto moving in such a variety of distinct and powerful ways that it leaves me reeling, The first stanza makes me feel as if the earth has paused in a moment of universal silence, while the only movement is that of the ship that carries his friend's remains, soaring bird-like across the placid sea. The next three stanzas. Oh my. He wishes Godspeed to the ship with a series of phrases and images that are achingly poignant. There's such tragedy in the contradiction between Tennyson's eagerness for the ship to draw Hallam home, despite the pointlessness he sees in his own mourning. Quote, So draw him home to those that mourn in vain. Unquote. There's such artistry in the scenes he paints of the ship as it speeds along, the keel rippling the mast's reflection, the light of the morning star glimmering on the dewy decks the heavens enveloping it all in a twinkling canopy. And there is such a tone of deep reverence for his friend throughout, calling the vessel that contains his friend's remains a holy urn, comparing the light of Venus to that of their pure love, and imploring the winds and the heavens to sleep so that his voyage, even in death, is undisturbed. And then, in the last stanza his simple declaration that Arthur, to him, was more than a brother, dear as the son to the mother, dear as a spouse. For without him, life is no more than a widowed race to be run. Here's Canto 9. Fair ship that from the Italian shore sailest the placid ocean plains, with my lost Arthur's loved remains, spread thy full wings, and waft him o'er. So draw him home to those that mourn in vain, a favorable speed ruffle thy mirrored mast, and lead through prosperous floods his holy urn. All night no ruder air perplex thy sliding keel, till phosphor, Bright as our pure love, through early light, shall glimmer on the dewy decks. Sphere all your lights around, above. Sleep, gentle heavens, before the prow. Sleep, gentle winds, as he sleeps now, my friend, the brother of my love. My Arthur, whom I shall not see till all my widowed race be run, dear as the mother to the sun more than my brothers are to me. Canto ten opens with a vision of the ship that is benign and pleasant, the rushing water, the sounding bell, the brightly lit cabin window, the sailor at the helm, as it carries the sailor to his wife, the traveler to his home, the letter into eager hands. And all this is abruptly contrasted with its tragic cargo. Quote, Thy dark freight, a vanished life, Again, Tennyson almost guiltily describes it as an idle dream, a foolish habit, a fancy that he longs to see his friend buried at home in an English churchyard. So he bids the ship a safe voyage so that he may see his friend properly buried in consecrated ground rather than tangled with the shells of the seafloor. I just finished reading Antigone. She would not call this a foolish fancy. To see it happen, she would defy the orders of a king and face execution. But Tennyson is so tortured by his loss that it seems nothing can console him. And any efforts to find comfort or to do his friend honor seem futile. He had such love. I hope I love that much. Here's Canto Ten. I hear the noise about thy keel. I hear the bell struck in the night. I see the cabin window bright. I see the sailor at the wheel. Thou bringest the sailor to his wife and traveled men from foreign lands and letters unto trembling hands and thy dark freight, a vanished life. So bring him. We have idle dreams. This look of quiet flatters thus our home-bred fancies. Oh, to us, the fools of habit, Sweeter seems to rest beneath the clover sod That takes the sunshine and the rains, Or where the kneeling hamlet Drains the chalice of the grapes of God. Then if with thee the roaring wells Should gulf him fathom-deep in brine, And hands so often clasped in mine Should toss with tangle and with shells. In Canto Eleven, Tennyson describes the peaceful, Woolly, idyllic calm of a fall day, The sort of calm that would bring solace To a calmer grief than his, The gentle patter of the falling chestnut, The dew-drenched firs, the reddened leaves of the autumn bowers. But in his unrelenting sorrow, this calm for him is felt only as a calm despair. And it calls to his mind yet another image that nearly killed me, the dead calm of his friend's breast, which on its voyage back to England, quote, heaves but with the heaving deep, unquote. Here's Canto Eleven. Calm is the morn without a sound, Calm as to suit a calmer grief, And only through the faded leaf, The chestnut pattering to the ground, Calm and deep peace on this high wold, And on these dews that drench the firs, And all the silvery gossamers that twinkle into green and gold calm and still light on yon great plain, that sweeps with all its autumn bowers, and crowded farms and lessening towers, to mingle with the bounding main. Calm and deep peace in this wide air, these leaves that redden to the fall, and in my heart, if calm at all, if any calm, a calm despair calm on the seas and silver sleep and waves that sway themselves in rest and dead calm in that noble breast which heaves but with the heaving deep. In Canto Twelve, Tennyson imagines his soul escaping his pain-racked body, a body so consumed by blind anguish that he describes it powerfully as, quote, a weight of nerves without a mind, His soul sails away like a dove bearing a dolorous message to heaven, leaves the cliffs, crosses the sea, reaches the southern skies, and sees the sails of the ship as it lingers on the horizon. He captures his own disbelieving and unremitting grief in the image of that bird that circles the ship, moaning again and again, Is this the end? Is this the end? When he recovers himself, he realizes he has spent an hour in dazed reverie, while his thoughts have flown to the ship that carries his friend. Here's Canto Twelve. Lo, as a dove when up she springs, to bear through heaven a tale of woe, some dolorous message knit below the wild pulsation of her wings— Like her I go, I cannot stay. I leave this mortal ark behind, a weight of nerves without a mind, and leave the cliffs and haste away, or ocean mirrors rounded large, and reach the glow of southern skies, and see the sails at distance rise and linger, weeping on the marge. And saying, comes he thus, my friend, Is this the end of all my care? And circle, moaning in the air, Is this the end? Is this the end? And forward, dart again, and play about the prow, And back return to where the body sits, And learn that I have been an hour away. One of my favorite poems is Wordsworth's Surprised by Joy the theme of which is the experience of turning to share something with one you love in a blissful moment of forgetting, and then remembering that they are gone. That is the same theme in the first two stanzas of Canto Thirteen. The widower sees his beloved in his dreams, reaches out to hold her, and finds her place empty. Tennyson feels that same aching void. He feels it continually and he believes he will feel it always, or until he is reunited with his friend in death. But it is clear that the prospect of reunion in death can only console him so much. He longs for his friend's physical presence, his warm hand, his human heart, his breathing voice. And sometimes he still feels as if it is all a dream. Here's Canto 13. Tears of the late widower, when he sees a late lost form that sleep reveals, and moves his doubtful arms, and feels her places empty, fall like these, which weep a loss for ever new, a void where heart on heart reposed, and where warm hands have pressed and closed, silence till I be silent too." Which weep the comrade of my choice, An awful thought, a life removed, The human-hearted man I loved, A spirit, not a breathing voice. Come, time, and teach me, Many years I do not suffer in a dream, For now so strange do these things seem, Mine eyes have leisure for their tears. My fancies time to rise on wing, and glance about the approaching sails, as though they brought but merchants' bales, and not the burden that they bring. In Canto fourteen, he plays out this feeling that it has all been a dream. I wonder whether this is a universal impulse. Years ago, I lost a friend to suicide. I remember thinking, however irrationally, that maybe he'd faked his death. I would see a car like his, or someone who resembled him at a distance, and feel, foolishly, that it really could be he. There are a few especially touching moments in Tennyson's playing out of this fantasy. I'm moved by his deep reverence for Hallam, the man he held as half-divine. I find this sort of uninhibited reverence to be increasingly rare in a culture that seems to me to have become both More guarded and more superficial. Tennyson's hero worship is refreshing and inspirational. I also love the detail of his friend consoling Tennyson over his own death, because when we mourn the death of the one most dear to us, what we need most is precisely the loss we mourn his comfort. Here's Canto 14. If one should bring me this report, That thou hadst touched the land to-day, And I went down unto the quay, And found thee lying in the port, And standing, muffled round with woe, Should see thy passengers in rank, Come stepping lightly down the plank, And beckoning unto those they know. And if along with these should come The man I held as half-divine, Should strike a sudden hand in mine, And ask a thousand things of home. And I should tell him all my pain, And how my life had drooped of late, And he should sorrow o'er my state, And marvel what possessed my brain. And I perceived no touch of change, No hint of death in all his frame, But found him all in all the same. I should not feel it to be strange." I hope the close study of these stanzas has helped you to experience the power of this poem, to discover techniques for deriving that power yourself, and to convince you that putting in the effort is worth it. Tomorrow, we're going to move on to a new short story, but I might come back to this poem from time to time. Meanwhile, if you want to keep working on this poem yourself, I've discovered through this process a few wonderful resources, books that extensively annotate the poem, I will include links to them in an email to you and on the Facebook page. If you keep going, you will come to what is undoubtedly one of the most famous lines in all of poetry. Quote, I hold it true, whate'er befall, I feel it when I sorrow most. Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all.